the book of Judges speaks of judges not from a judicial sense, but rather heroic sense. God raised up in the Old Testament judges who did not wear the black robes to make them distinguished among the rest of the people. They didn't sit on some high bench, hold some gavel in their hand so they can just strike it just to bring you into order. No, they were deliverers sent by God to deliver his people. The 12 men and the one woman whose stories are told in this book were the instruments through which God judged those who had wandered away from him and through which he delivered those who were held captive yet turned and sought God when they finally became broken. These 13 judges lived between the time of Joshua and Samuel during a span almost of about 400 years. And throughout this book, we will see a spiral downward cycle that is so common even today in people's lives. But this spiral downward cycle that is repeated seven times during this period of time, a cycle very familiar to the one which we we often see in our own lives or in other people's lives, where we would see people of Israel serving God and really wanting to be obedient to his commandments, to follow all of his statutes, to live for him. And then we find they move into that second step of the cycle where they succumb to sin. Then they move on to the downward spiral into the third cycle where they are now enslaved in that sin. Then they move down to the fourth cycle, spiraling down where they become to a point where they're sorry about their sin. And finally, they are saved from their sin as they cry out to God. The one message that stands very clear in the book of Judges is that sin doesn't pay. It's going to cost you. That sin is be enticing and you may want to get on the ride thinking you're serving God and you'll be just fine but you will succumb to the the temptation or to the sin that just seems to not to be too serious in your mind. But then you're on a ride for cycling downward very quickly where you're enslaved and you come to a point you know you're going to crash and you realize that was absolutely not worth it. But the good news, however, in the book of Judges is that although the people of Israel stumbled in their sin and became enslaved to that sin, they were also delivered from sin when they called out to the Lord. And praise God, he hears them that it is true of us as well. Even though we may not feel it, how could God even actually respond to us because we once again succumb to sin? And how could God really answer the prayer? By repenting and crying out to the Lord. He hears that cry. The book of Judges is built on the premises of faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness and obedience are not only necessary for victory in this land, the promised land that God had told them that he promised for them, but for enjoyment of the kingdom. Faithfulness and obedience to receive the promised land was great, but it was also the faithfulness and obedience for you to enjoy that land. And it's how many people forget That faithfulness is so important in obedience to God. But here in Judges chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, we see here that there's a movement from Gilgal to 
Bacham, which we see is that the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore. (laughs) There's a therefore. (laughs) That means there's consequences. Therefore, I also said I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side. And their gods shall be a snare to you. Wow. The angel of the Lord. It is God in the flesh. A theophany. God himself appearing in a human form in the Old Testament. Yes. There are frequent Old Testament appearances of the angel of the Lord that indicated that he is God himself coming and revealing himself in front. Jesus Christ himself, the Son. And there is legitimate question as to if every mention of the angel of the Lord is a divine appearance. But assuming this to be a divine appearance as the author believes it it doesn't indicate... Why you have a capital A for angel there. We can surmise that this was Jesus Christ appearing to his people of Israel before his incarnated appearance in Bethlehem. And we know this is Jesus for two reasons. First, because the angel of the Lord here claimed divinity by saying he was the one who led Israel out of Egypt who made a covenant with Israel there in verse 1, and who personally called Israel to obedience in verse 2. The second reason is because this person appearing in the form of human form before Israel cannot be God the Father because the Father is described as invisible in 1 Timothy 1.17. And whom no man has seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6.16. So the idea of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, appearing as a man before Bethlehem reminds us that he has always existed. Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. He was already in existence. Go back and read Micah 5.2. Why should he not on isolated times and important occasions as such as this appear in a bodily form to his people. We see other places where this happens, such as in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Or Genesis 32, somewhere at the very end there, somewhere around 24 to 30. We'll also see it again in Judges 13, verses 1 through 23. But the first thing that Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, did was remind Israel of what? Of judgment? No, the first thing he says to him is of his great love. He reminds them of his great love and his faithfulness to them through the generations. He delivered them from Egypt's bondage. He gave them an abundant land of promise as he had promised through generation upon generation. He gave them a covenant that he said he would never break. He cannot break his covenants. It is God's general pattern. And I love this because God teaches us it's a pattern that he has to remind us of his great love and his faithfulness to us. And he does that before he then says, because of my love, because of what I've done for you, his expectation, what he's asking for us, from us, before he does anything else, his great love, his faithfulness, then he calls us to obedience 
And then he confronts us of our sin that is in our lives. And he says, no, 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 that doesn't need to be in your life anymore. Get that out of your life. That, no, 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 that's not, that's not of me. I want you to be more like me. No, no, that, that's got to go. We love him because he first loved us. We learn that in, and we'll get to that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, I believe. But we can only rely and obey him as we walk in his love and abide in his covenant with us. We abide in Christ because we are reminded of his love for us. We are reminded of his covenant for us, a new covenant. And because of that, and reminding of his new covenant, of his love for us, we abide in him. God is the same way here in the Old Testament. He reminds of the people of his love and his covenant. But then he says to them, and he reminds them, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And he'll never break the covenant with them. Even though they, Israel was never fully obedient in, obedient in response to God. That didn't change God. They didn't choose to be fully devoted and abiding in, in, in God and, in, and, and fulfill the, the, the promise that they said they would do. But God promised he would never forsake his part of the covenant. God promises us today that he'll never forsake us, never leave us or forsake us. We sang of that. Did you, that, would that really come and resonate in your heart as you were worshiping God with those, those words? And he reminds him, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? The angel of the Lord confronted Israel in love. It really is love. He asks the question, why oh, you have not obeyed my voice? Why, do you, why, do you, why have you done this? He didn't smite them. He didn't torch them. He didn't throw fire and brimstone down upon them. Could have taken them out. Sent a plague. Sent all, no, he asks a very loving question for them to come to the realization. Why did you succumb to the sin? of disobedience, unfaithfulness. Why did you succumb to this? It was very simply a stinging question, was it not? It's really stinging. God looking right into their eyes. Every ear could hear. Why did you do this? <laughs> There is never a good reason for our disobedience. There's never a good reason for our disobedience. Remember, Israel's real problem was not one of military power or lack of technology. It was a spiritual problem. It was at the heart of the people. That was the problem. And then he says, I will drive them out, be, out before you. I, I will not. I was there with you. I led you. I drove them out. I made a way. And, and so they, they, the, these giants and everybody else could, would not have a say on you. You had to just do your part, finish through, follow through, be obedient, stay focused and abiding in me. And you did not. So the consequence, therefore, I will not drive them out before you. Because your desire was that you wanted them in there. You desired for the enemy, those you were supposed to drive out. You didn't desire for them to go as I told you to do. Now they're going to be thorns in your side. It's going to be painful. So the angel of the Lord announced he would allow the work of possessing the land to go unfinished as a way of correcting their disobedience. Could have. I'm, my hands are off it now, and you're not going to be able to completely obtain the promised land. 
finish the work. So when he says, I will not drive them out before you, reminds us that God will not do the work of conquering Canaan all by himself, like he did in the early years. Early years of the campaign of Canaan, God did the fight for Israel in a supernatural wall. Walls came down. Seemed like you could overcome anything in their lives and the enemies in front of them. It was just God moved them out of the way miraculously. But the remaining, once that major thing was done, they were supposed to go in, as God said, and to conquer and obtain all of it and push out the rest of the Canaanites, which they chose not to. They chose that it was okay for them, the enemy, to be still part of and around their life. <laughs> Reminds me we often, so many times, wish God would do the work of completely maturing me as a Christian. Can you like replace my brain and give me a new brain? Take out my old heart, give me a new heart. Can you just make me perfect? Can you do it all and just take care of everything? That we wake up one morning and that there's no sin whatsoever that even dominates your mind or even thought. Completely. Just don't even, you don't, you don't even think about it. He's taking it all completely away. It's not even a, it's not even a, it's just full of joy. No more struggle with sin. It'll just be gone. Sometimes God grants miraculous healings. Miraculous deliverance. You couldn't put the drug down and all of a sudden, boom, you give your life to Jesus and it's just like you don't even, even think about the drug anymore. It's like gone. Like miraculous. And we hear those testimonies. And we praise him and we glorify him through all that. But what's more common to all of us is he requires a partnership with him. He requires the fact that in the process of Christian growth, he, he makes a way for you to be able to walk away from those sins. And then in partnership with him, he leads you away from those things. He just doesn't, sometimes they, they kind of follow you and kind of get a grip of holding and sometimes want to hook you sometimes. But he gives you and makes you a way to move forward and empower you to walk away from those sins. But our partnership is important to God because it shows that our heart is where his heart is, that we are truly growing closer to God. We want to follow in obedience to God. We really want to be a follower of God. In all aspects of our lives, highs and the lows, but we know where even those things that seems to still have a challenge with us, that those thoughts and those ways of life and our things that... God, I know I'm going to keep, keep following you and eventually I'm going to mature and those things are not going to cause me and grip me any longer. But the challenge here with the Israelites is they didn't desire for those to be out of their lives. They said, that's fine. It's, it's not that bad. It'll be fine. We'll get some benefits. You know, there's some financial benefits and they can do this and they can be our slaves and do our hard work. They can do all the gut work in the city so that we don't have to do them. So let's, let's let those, let them stay right here so they can do all the gut work so we don't have to do the dirty work. Let someone else do the work. God says, those are going to be thorns in your side and their gods shall be your snare to you. See, the announcement of the Canaanites would remain as a problems to the nation of Israel. It was, he said that way beforehand that that was going to happen. If you don't get them out of your life, they're going to be a problem for in your life. If you don't faithfully drive them out, get them out. We see in Numbers 33, verse 55. If you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, oh, if you let them remain, they're going to be irritants to your eyes, thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Those things are going to harass you. It's not going to be good. 
So what happens here in verses 4 through 6? So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of the place Bachem, or meaning weeping, And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Ah, we see very clearly this is during the time where Joshua is at the very end of his life. When this all is taking place. The warnings were taking place. The signs were there. Joshua had not even died yet. The initial, uh, you know, uh, campaign to take out all the strongholds were gone. Now they were taking possessions of their lands. They were to do the finish up their job and work with God to get the rest of them out. And they did not do that. We studied that. But here God is saying directly, he's coming in person directly to tell them, you did not keep your side of the, the covenant. You were to, all the way from the very beginning of generation upon generation, you were to be obedient and be faithful to me and follow me and do exactly what I tell you to do, and you didn't do it. That means I'm not going to be with you, when you when you're, from that, this point forward. Your life is not going to be good. And it's going to cause you to eyes problems, side problems, the thorn in the sides. They're going to be an irritant to you. They are going to do nothing but harass you. Because you chose to allow that to continue to be in your life. So what do they do? Like many people do. When they're caught in sin, caught in disobedience, caught doing something they know they, they want, they desire, they didn't care, they think it's no big deal, they find out it is a big deal, and God does see and knows and have a problem. The emotional response of the people was weeping and crying and promising everything. Now that sounds really hopeful. Oh, he cried. He must be really, he must be really, you know, really, really broken because of the fact that he, you know, he's called out for his sin. She just absolutely is losing it because she knew she screwed up and, and now she's, it's, it's been found out. With all the weeping, with all the wailing, there must, was a reason to believe that God's words ha- somehow deeply impacted their lives because he heard the voice of God and they responded and it just seems like they must have gotten saved. They must have changed. The, the Israelites are really are repentant. They, really, they must be really feeling bad about this. That they didn't follow through with the covenant. That they were somehow on their way to a genuine revival of God's work among them. They're going to, whole nation of Israel is going to change now. It's going to, now they're going to be faithful and obedient to God. But sadly, that's not the case. It wasn't the case at all. Because as we continue in the subsequent record of the book of Judges shows that this initial reaction of sorrow and supposed repentance did not mature into a real lasting repentance. Real repentance shows itself in actions, not just crying. Not just words, but actions. Not necessarily in weeping, but in actions. They start showing and living a life of obedience and faithfulness to God. Yes, we can be sorry about the consequences of our sin. Without being sorry about the sin itself. And unfortunately, many times, many people weep and outwardly show repentance without ever inwardly repenting. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says it so nicely. So render your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and of great kindness. Don't be sitting there ripping your clothes. Oh, I'm in anguish. 
Let the heart be ripping apart. Let the heart be the one changing. Let the heart be the one that's being affected here. Let the mind shift and completely repent. Go in the opposite direction. Because the direction you're going is not the direction God wants you to go. So go follow, turn around and go follow Him. That's what God was saying to these people. And they sat there and said, oh, this is terrible, you know. But history shows that they weren't really repentant. Because they went right back to allowing the enemy to continue to dwell among them and allow it to be in their lives. They even sacrificed. Look at the, ver the verses here. They even sacrificed to their Lord. They did the right thing. They were supposed to do that. They did the right thing. And awareness of sin should drive us to God's appointed sacrifice. In their days, that meant they were getting a lot of bulls were dying. <laughs> there was a lot of rams dying. And that's what it meant for them, their days. But in our day, it means remembering God's sacrifice for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't sacrifice a bull or a ram. When we sacrifice, we come to the sacrifice that is of all sacrifices, the perfect sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. We come to the foot of the cross. You want to sacrifice? When God has revealed to you, you there's something in your life, an enemy that you are supposed to get out and you did choose not to get it out, it should bring you to your knees and you should repent and come to the foot of the cross. And remember the sacrifice Jesus did for you and me. And then when J J Joshua dismissed the people, what happened here? We see that he dismissed the people and the children of Israel went each to their own back to their promised land. You know, Judges 2 begins as like a retrospect, kind of looking back to the days even before the death of Joshua here. And, and, and this hopeful response to the angel of the Lord started when Joshua was still alive. God, God was there because Joshua was there, and I mean really just revealing it to him and said, hey, Joshua's going, and I'm having no one else appointed. You're going to follow me here, and you're not, so understand, I'm not going to be with you here. You're not going to have Joshua around to help you. Moses is already gone. It's just you and me. There's no, there's no one between you and me. You're supposed to come to me. Follow me. And what did this new generation of Israel do? Well, look at what happened in verses 7 through 10. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Whoa, yes, we, did, we knew this. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So there was a period of time after Joshua when the rest of the elders, they continued to do exactly what they said they were going to do. And they were repenting of that point of the fact that they were willing because they knew Joshua was still alive and these elders knew what God had just done and they were going to be obedient because they had this almost, when I read that, I go, oh, they have accountability. They had accountability. That's why they stayed there so close and they were staying really focused on serving God and, 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 and following the Lord all the days of Joshua. And those who were the elders who were there at the time, they were going to be obedient and faithful and who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. And when he was one when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of, the, of his inheritance of uh, Timnath, Harris, and the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of the Mount Gash. When all of that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, know their work which he had done for Israel. Accountability. Joshua was there. Everyone knew what God had done. And the next, that, then Joshua left. And that next generation had left. Now this new generation comes up. And they do not continue to follow the Lord. Joshua's legacy was seen. Was known for his godly leadership. He's one of the truly one of the great history of great men of God. A servant of the Lord. 
incredible meaning, tight, meaningful title for Joshua. But that title of the servant of the Lord only applied to a few men. In the scripture, one of them was Moses. Deuteronomy 34.5. David, Psalm 18.1. Some of the courageous prophets in 2 Kings 9.7. We see here Joshua as well. But we see that all the days of the elders and all the days that outlived outlived Joshua, they were continuing to follow. But it was that next generation, the new generation, that had no personal relationship with God. No personal awareness of God's power. The God that they hear about, that was their father's God. That was, my, that was my grandmother and grandfather's God. That was my parents' God. That was, my, that was back a generation. But me and our new generation, that's not our God. I don't know what you're talking about. My parents, my grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, they all died. They used to talk about God, but no one here is now talking about God in the new generation. And what happened? They didn't know anything about God. Now it's interesting here. We see that because they were serving God, they were following God, they were faithful and obedient to God. But when you take your eyes off of God, in this case the new generation, what happens in this step of the cycle of sin? We see right here in verses 11 through 13, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and Astaroths. Notice Baals are plural, Astaroths are plural. They're multiple gods. Whatever they wanted to make them up had different names for different purposes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. But we see now we went from step one of, in the cycle of serving God and following God, and now they're moving into step two of the cycle downward. The cycle that step two is Israel's succumbing to sin. How did they succumb to sin? They started serving Baal. Baals and Astaroths started bowing down to them, started following them, worshiping them. Why? Because they forsook. When you follow something else and you don't follow God, you're forsaking God. Well, I didn't really say I got rid of God. I I didn't really say I'm not following God. But you are by your actions of following other gods. By you following other gods, you automatically are forsaking other, the true and living God. They did evil. That's what's a good result. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of God. Even in the days of Joshua, Israel did not fully possess what the promised land is, what they were supposed to do. Instead, they fell to these very grotesque idols. Because they started associating with those who worshipped other gods. Worshipped in the worldly ways. And they become who you associate with. And they started getting and bringing that in. It started seeping in to their lives. And if it seeps into God's people's lives, then God's people are going to take it in among the other people of God. That's why we have to be very careful not as a people of God to allow the world and grotesque idols and all the things that the Satan has to offer and entice you and bring it into the church. We've got to be very careful what we read, what we're watching, and what we talk about and, and things become of interest. Because you could subtly be bringing these false things in among the God's people and everyone's going to get cancer, contamination from it. We see it today in all of our many, many, many churches.
it's, it's, it's kind of strange if you think about it. Why in your, anyone in their right mind would want to trade a personal, real, living God relationship for a false one? For just a figment of man's imagination type. But what's the scary part is, is there's something within man that is afraid to of the, 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 the true and living God we need. We rather serve a God of our own creation than live for a real, true, living God. <laughs> I finally came to a conclusion after wrestling with that over the last few days. The difference there is when you follow a true living God, he is the master. He's in control. When you create your own God, then you're in control. And you and I like control. You want how you want it, when you want it, how much you want it. And that's why it's easier for you Because you can create a God or gods that you want to fulfill your sinful desires. That's why. And that's why they served Baals, because they wanted to serve gods that they could control. A Canaanite idol, which is Baal, was an attractive Rival against Yahweh. It was a replacement, a substitute. Because he thought, or they thought, that this God who was over the weather and over nature for the Canaanites, they were going to be the God they needed because that God is going to give us this agricultural success. We're going to be wealthy and we're going to be wise and we're going to make it big. In this world, as it is, we have got to follow that God because we want lifestyle. and We want the agricultural God to give us and bless us with all the abundance of our wealth, which is in that time agricultural success, and that means fruitfulness. And if you are in an agricultural society, people served Baal because they wanted good weather and abundant crops and flocks and all this would have affected because it was a god of personal wealth. That is why they served them. I mean, you can go back and you can see in Numbers, and even in Judges we continue, there was all kinds of Baals. But they were all for personal, particular desires that they wanted in their life. And that's why they forsake the Lord and served them. Even the Astaroths. If it wasn't for personal wealth and the Astaroths, that's who the Canaanites' idol they created because it was a very attractive a substitute of, uh, of Yahweh. Because she, Ashtaroth, would be the goddess of love and sex and fertility. She was usually honored on the practice of ritual sex with a priestess prostitute in a form of religion. She represented the sex and the love, the desires that those people wanted. So it's not, if it's not wealth, it's sex and it's money and it's all this enjoyment. It's nothing new under the sun. That's why they followed these idols and that is why people follow idols today. Same desires of the same sinful heart. So God made it clear to them. You pursue these gods? You forsaked me? You forsake the God of your fathers? It's just idolatry. 
Idolatry is forsaking God. They thought, if I just add a few idols, I shouldn't be a big deal. It's, it's not a big deal. I'm, I'm still, I still you know, I represent as God's people here. We're in the promised land. I mean, we're still going to show up at church, you know, and we still do, you know, talk about and, and show your Bible that you might have a Bible, but you've never read the Bible. But don't fool yourselves. God says, don't fool yourselves. That's why we see in the scripture, and God makes it clear, have no other gods. Why? Because God of Israel is a jealous God. (laughs) He demanded exclusive worship. And so much like the, the, the example of biblical illustration of marriage. A marriage relationship between a man and a a husband and wife, a man and woman. It would be wrong for a wife or a husband to add many lovers to her or his marriage. God has a righteous claim on our exclusive worship. And that's the only one we are to worship. And it says in the sight of the Lord, God sees all things. But they wanted adultery or idolatry. They wanted to have a lifestyle that they wanted to make up their own now. They don't need God. They were in the promised land. They've they've arrived to the promised land. Now they get to live however they want to. Don't be fooled. Look what happened in verse 14 and 15 from this. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. I don't know about you. You don't see that very often in the scripture where you see God gets hot with anger. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled or devastated them. The word there is devastated them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they would no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, whatever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. It's like you want to say to these people, Israel, are you out of your mind? He made it so clear to you over generation upon generation. If you do this, this is not something he's just going to turn a blind eye and walk away and say, okay, you're on your own. He, there's huge consequences. The response to God for your unfaithfulness is not going to be a surprise to you because I've been warning you. He specifically said in his word, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, if you're not obedient, you're not faithful, if you're not going to follow me, if you're not going to keep the covenant, there would be no longer blessings and you you will not get the blessings for obedience, but you'll get curses for disobedience. Woo! But let me remind you, my brothers and sisters, today, Remember, we serve God under the terms of a different covenant today. A better covenant we see in Hebrews 8.6. When we forsake God and do not abide in Jesus Christ, things may and often do go bad for us. I mean, really badly for us. But not because God has actively sent his hand down and cursed you. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. He doesn't actually get in in his hand against us and has he did it to Israel under the old covenant. But when we do not abide in Jesus and things go bad for us, it's because our actions have consequences and we're reaping what we have sown. We will reap the bitter fruit of not being keeping ourselves in the love of God. We see that in Jude, verse 21. 
God doesn't sit there and say, I'm about to bring a curse upon you because you're not abiding in me and following me. What God says is, okay, let's see how this is going to work out for you. And lets us have our desires and lets us go, even though he's constantly bringing people around and finding, getting your attentions and showing you, don't do it, don't go that way. Don't. He's, all convictions are coming across. You're ignoring the convictions. You're ignoring the, the, the obvious verses that are being spoke. Every Sunday you're sitting there going, why does he keep talking to me directly? I'm not talking to you directly. The Holy Spirit's talking to you directly. And even from all that, he says, okay, what you're going to reap is from the fact that you walked away from God and there's consequences when you walk away from him. You don't have that protection, that, that peace. There's no more joy. It's, 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 he's, the, he's peace. He's joy. You're walking away from it. The colder you're going to get. The more unhappy and distressed you're going to be, more oppression and depression. It's coming. But here in our, in our verses here, we see the fact that they, they served God. Then they got, a, they got caught in the hell. They decided to grab a hold of the sin. But then that resulted into step three of the spiraling of sin. And after they touched that sin, they were succumbing to sin. The people of Israel became enslaved to sin. They're enslaved. They can't even get out. They're so overwhelmed by it, they're succumbed to it. They're enslaved to it. And when that happens, we see in the, the fourth cycle here, the heavy, the Lord's heavy, heaviness of his hand comes against them. And Israel is made to bring to a feeling sorry for this. Finally, they realize, uh-oh, we really screwed up. But look what happens. Verse 16, nevertheless, ah, those are sometimes, those are good, that's a good word. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Here we are going into judges here. We now see God raises up a man, 13 judges. Yet they would not listen to their judges. God sent someone in their life to help them, to bring them out of what the life of plundering and devastation of their lives. God raised someone up in their life to help them out. A judge? A hero? Someone a heroic? You know, we're talking, what's this, what's this show? I, I probably shouldn't even be talking about this because I don't know what's enough about it. Superheroes, whatever. They're, they're, they're swooping in. They're coming in for you to help you and you are going to ignore it? You're going to ignore the person that God has brought in your life to help you. You're going to ignore him. Yes. Yet they would not listen to their judges there, verse 17, but they played the harlot with other gods. You know what it means to play a harlot with other gods means? You've turned yourself over to everything and anything, abuse, anything, use slavery you've just turned yourself over to it and bowed down to them you've succumbed you're, you're worshiping you're 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 broken to them and they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the lord and they did not do so verse 18 and when the lord raised up judges for them the lord was with was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge God still used that judge, even though we're not listening. God used the judge to bring the, his people back out of bondage, out of, the, out of the, the actually enslaved sin that they were in of disobedience. He's brought them up using that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and, and, and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judges was, was dead, 
that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. Did you see that? As soon as God brings them out of that enslaved sin, as soon as that judge, that hero, the one that God used to bring you out to help you to get back on track, as soon as that person's out of your life, what happens? They went back, and it's never, when you go back to your sin, it's never to the same. It gets worse. It gets worse. Just like it says right here, they had more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. That word stubborn means stiff-necked. But even though when they're enslaved and they're in, in bondage of the sin, God still, out of pity, wanted to bring his people out and he raised up someone to help them come out of the bondage. A hero to rescue Israel from their calamity, from their destruction, from their enemy. And he did this not because Israel has somehow deserved it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve such a deliverer from God. They were very undeserving of, of someone to help him. But that's step five of this cycle. A compassionate, loving God showed that to his people. And the Lord saves them from their sin. But did you notice after he raised someone else to do it, nevertheless the Lord raised up these judges... They still, they would not listen to their judges. They would, God would use them and bring them through this. But as soon as that judge was out of the way, they went right back. Right back to the sin. They would not listen to their judges in their matters of spiritual leadership. They wanted judges from a political and military leadership. Eventually, I want a king. Remember, that's the, that's the heart come from. They didn't want to be followed by God. They would rather follow a man than follow God. Because they could create their own king. They would find their own kings. Find that, that didn't work out well for them either. But the Lord was with the, the judge. The Lord was with the judge. The Lord was using this judge to, again, bring a person in front of them to raise them up and to lead them out of this, these, these dramatic acts of deliverance, out of their bondage of sin and, and be a miracle and bring them out. Not because the judge was anything great. It's because God was great and God was using that judge in a mighty way. Why? Because he was moved with, to pity for their groaning and their pain and their suffering that they were going through. But notice here, as soon as the judge dies, they go right back to step what? Step two, three, four, five. They're going to go right back into the cycle again. Multiple times we will see through the book of Judges this cycle, this discouraging cycle now, interesting, when you look at it from an Old Testament perspective, you can kind of see that. The, the discouraging cycle was more understandable in the ancient Israel than in the life of the modern Christian today. Why? Because Christian, as a part of the new covenant, lives with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's with you at all times. He's created, made it a new creature in Jesus Christ, created this new life inside you. Indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. With a new covenant. Israel did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, except the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them, but not dwelling within them. So you can understand why Israel, Israel, as soon as they sinned, the Holy Spirit would be, could leave them. David even cried, please let your Holy Spirit not leave me. He understood the consequence. But for as a believer, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. You grieve the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. 
But their sin was their own doings. They couldn't blame it on anyone or anything else. And in the same way that their sin was their own, they didn't learn it from God. They didn't learn it. It was their own corrupt natures that wanted to live the life that they wanted. They were very stubborn, as the scripture tells us. Stiff-necked. Even though the nation of Israel moved locations, they moved out of the bondage of Egypt and moved into the promised land, did not change the heart. They brought that, that sinful nature with them right into the promised land. So many people do it today. Let's move, and, let's move and let's change locations and everything will be better. We'll have a new start and no one will know what we went through and all the problems and issues. And you try to escape by leaving and going someplace, but that doesn't change the heart. We should never count on sanctification by relocation. How many times we... We lean on our understanding and feelings and think that's what we should do. There is no sanctification by relocation. Wherever you go, you take you with you. <laughs> a new environment doesn't always mean a new attitude or a change to godly life. Verse 20, then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I command their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I, will, I also will not, no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel. Ah, he's going to test Israel here. Whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left their, those nations without driving them out immediately, immediately, immediate obedience. No, 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 nor did the, he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So we see here the anger of the Lord was hot. The wrath of God was hot. And because the nation was transgressed my covenant, when God said this nation instead of my nation, did you notice that in those verses? He says, verse, one, uh, verse 20, because this nation, not my nation, he was first, this is my nation, this is my nation, these are my people, this is my, he, the language changed. God says, this nation. When God said this nation instead of my nation, it showed that Israel wasn't abiding in the relationship with God. Is he your God or is he their God? That's your God. You ever heard that from someone? Let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, that's your God. I thought you were a Christian. No, 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 that's not my God. Well, what God are you talking about? Let's talk about Jesus. No, 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 no. Let's just talk about God. Well, then you're not talking about the same God I'm talking about. God said, I'm taking my hands off. I'm not driving your enemies out. I'm not driving the Canaanite nations and pushing them around. God gave them to the worst punishment they could ever receive from God. You know what the worst punishment that, that those people could receive from God? God gave them the worst punishment by giving them their own desire. Whatever he, they could come up with, he allowed them to have it. And so the Lord left those nations. After settling their hearts on sinful things, Israel found that God gave what their sinful hearts desired. He says, if that's what you want, you can have it. <laughs> when you read that thing, you read this really clear. It should sell in our hearts. Lord, please do not allow me to ponder on and settle on my heart of any sinful things. Don't let us, Lord, please don't let me get to a point where you allow me to have those sinful desires. Because if I ponder on that sin 
and I look for opportunity and you allow me, that means I'm going to get snared into that sin. I'm going to go right into bondage and it's going to bring tremendous pain in my life. Just stop those thoughts before they start nesting in your hair. Even come close to getting to Just stop it. Bring it to light to God and say, God, help me. Change my heart, Lord. Change my heart. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your grace and your mercy as well. And we thank you for your love that's demonstrated of what you've done for us on, our, on the cross and dying for our sins, Lord. Now let us be faithful and obedient to you and follow you, abide in you the rest of the days of our life, Lord. With the great anticipation you're coming back for us soon. And be reminded of your sacrifice on the cross, of your love for us. Oh, Lord, may our love just be so responsive to your love and to your grace and to your mercies. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be open up your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.